morning. We're kicking off a brand new series on community. I'm going to jump right in because we've got a lot to cover. Um, you guys may remember, but I, I told you guys at some point that I was born in India. 1989 is exactly is when I was born, October of 1989, and we lived there until 1998. The first few years of my life in India, we spent on my dad's side of the family. And then the latter years, we moved to my, grand, uh, my mom's side, and we lived on my grandfather's farm. Now, on this farm, I did whatever I wanted. Times were different back then. I could roam the farm. I could climb up on trees. I got scars all over my knees from climbing up on trees and falling. We could go down the street, go to the neighbor's house. It was a different time back then, and I loved it. On the farm, we also had animals, all sorts of animals. We had cows. We had chickens. We had a rooster. We had goats. Uh, we had dogs. We also had some unwanted guests on the farm, and this would be the popular snakes of southern India. I remember one time there was this green Indian vine snake. And I had this showdown between the snake and my grandfather. And I remember as a kid, the snake was like half its body off the ground just looking at him. And all me and my siblings were watching the showdown. And my grandfather had this branch in his hand. And in my memory, it was like Barry Bonds and swung that thing onto the ground. Lots of memories of the farm. That's where I helped my grandfather pull a calf out of its mother. And where he showed me how to kill a chicken humanely at the neck. Sorry, all the vegans in the room. But these were all the memories that I had on the farm. I could just take a moment, close my eyes, and remember the sounds of that farm. I could just take a de deep breath in and remember some of the smells of the farm. One of the smells that I distinctly remember was the manure on the farm. So we got animals on the farm, so there's manure. We even had manure storage on the farm that we would later use as fertilizer. And here's the thing that I realized about a farm. It's kind of messy. You know, it's muddy, especially because they had monsoon seasons in India. Um, and the only way that a farm would not be messy is if animals did not exist. And as we kick off this two-part series on community, the only way that church community will be totally clean and mess-free is if people did not exist. And the other thing that I realized is that you only really know the messiness of the farm if you lived on the farm. And you only really know what true community is like if you enter into that community. So we moved in 1998, and then we moved to New York, and I lived in New York. And in 2012 was when we went back to India. So 14 years later, we finally made a trip back to India. And I was a different person at this time, 14 years later. I had gone from a farm in southern India to Long Island, New York. Now, we weren't wealthy, but compared to a farm in New York, it's like the pit to the palace. And so as I'm going back to India, I had this idea of what the farm was going to be like, all the memories that I had. And as I stepped foot on the farm, I realized I'm not sure this life is for me anymore. I'm a little too pampered here in America, a little too comfortable. And so when we stepped on the farm, I found myself staying indoors most of this time, and I'd be on my phone a lot. I had a phone now. I didn't have a phone back then. I would sit on the patio and watch things. But I didn't really step into the messiness. I liked the idea of a farm, but I didn't really like the experience of it. And here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian, says. You and I, we church folks, Christians, we like the idea of community, but we don't like the experience of it. Because what happens is that you enter into community, and you got opinions, and so does the person next to you in your pews. You got an idea of what church should look like, and so do the people in your pews. You got an idea of what friendships look like within a church, so do the people in your pews. You got an idea of who to vote for, so do the people in your pews. And what happens is when there's disagreements, we're not 
so good at handling those disagreements. Now let me talk to the church people in the room for a second. If you're new to church or if you're not sure you're a Christian, we're glad that you're here, you belong here. But let me talk to the church folks for a second. I grew up in church my whole life. I've been in full-time ministry over eight years in three different congregations. Here's what I've learned. Church folks are not good at handling disagreements. So oftentimes what happens is when there's a disagreement or something happens, you either settle or you separate. You settle by not dealing with the disagreement. You settle by not reconciling with one another. And so you smile when you see each other on Sundays, but deep inside you got some feelings about that person or something they said to you or something that happened in your life or whatever it may be. This could be true in your family life too, in your workplaces. You settle or you separate. What happens is when you face this crisis or the messiness that comes with relationships, you separate, you move on to the next church or the next workplace or the next marriage, the next relationship, whatever it may be. We settle or we separate. This is what often happens within church communities. But the problem is that when we handle it this way, when we only settle or we separate, We never truly enter into community because true community is found beyond the horizon of conflict. It's when we can disagree with one another and still choose to be in relationship with one another that we encounter true community. Jesus knew the importance of community. He knew the importance of unity between individuals. See, Jesus' final prayer on earth is recorded for us. And in his final prayer, Jesus did not pray that his followers would have longer church services so that they can say they're a spirit-led church. Jesus didn't say and pray to the Father that I pray that they would go deeper in their studies of Scripture. Jesus in his final prayer prayed, Father, I pray that they would be united. Here's what it says, John chapter 17, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Everybody say unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved, as you have loved me. There's a lot to unpack here. The beautiful prayer that Jesus prays. The first thing that he prays is, I pray, Father, that they would be one, that they would be united. Then he says something very interesting. He says, our unity is a sign to the world of God's love. Our unity is a sign to the world of God's love. In other words, your unity is your best witness to the world. I've said this before, one of our values here is community. We, we live in compassionate community where everyone belongs. If you walk through the main entrance, you've seen it on the wall there. And here's what that means. Jesus has brought all of us together into his family, regardless of who you are, what you look like, what your background is, what's in your bank, what city you were born in. Regardless of your ability or your disability, he's brought us together through the uniting finished work of the cross. He accomplishes this uniting work on the cross. The problem, I think, at times with the modern day church is that there are far too many Bible-believing, scripture-memorizing, church-attending people that believe in the uniting work of Jesus but do not know what it's like to be united to the people in their pews or their workplaces 
or their neighborhoods. In other words, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, we like the idea of community. We're not so good with the, the experience of it. And so today I want to address the problem with community. Next week I'll address the purpose of community. But I want to give us a few practical ways to step into the messiness so that we can move beyond the horizon of messiness and conflict and disagreements and embrace community. But for us to get to the purpose and potential that we have as a united church, as a united people, we've got to begin by embracing a posture of humility. This is essential. This is integral to entering community. So I'm going to blow your minds right now with my first point. Here's the first way that you enter into true community. You have to acknowledge that we don't have it all together. We don't have it all together. Let me say something else that might shock you. This church is not a perfect church. You know why it's not perfect? Because this pastor is not perfect. I'm glad, I'm glad you guys did an amen. The last service they were like, amen. <laughs> you know why this church is also not perfect? Because you're not perfect. And that's okay. It's okay. Anyone in here who's got it all together. You've never sinned, you've never lied, you've never even told a half lie, which is basically a lie. You have no past history, you're a saint, you've never gone above the speed limit or gossiped, you never yelled at your kids, you never had some words come out your mouth that you regret saying later on. Anyone in here, that's perfect. So we're all on the same page here, and that's a perfect place to start when it comes to entering community. The first step towards moving into community is acknowledging that I'm no better off than the person next to me. And this is theological. The book of Romans, Paul writes that there is none who is righteous for all have sinned and fallen short of the ultimate standard of God's standards. We just don't have it together apart from Christ. And so we enter into community with this posture of humility. We forget this a lot of times. Here's what the book of Philippians says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Imagine approaching disagreements or conflict or relationships. Not with your own interests, but to the interests of others. There's some things in my life that I've had to apologize for, like some areas where I've made some mistakes. There's one time, my wife and I, when we first got married and we moved into a home, we got a gift. And it was this serving tray. It was kind of fancy. Someone gifted it to us. It was half marble, half some type of fancy wood mixed together. Uh, it had our, our last name, Thomas, engraved on it. And my wife, she kept it on our kitchen just for a show, just to look at. We never used it. There's one time that I was making some pizza. And I was going to need some dough. I was going to start needing some dough. And for whatever reason, I don't know what came over me, I decided that I should knead this dough on the serving tray. Because it's marble. I can say I made the dough on marble. So here I am going hard on this dough. And like one minute in, the serving tray snaps in half. I tried to like super glue it back together so she wouldn't notice it. Marble, you can't super glue. It doesn't work that way. And so I had to apologize. I said, I'm sorry, I don't know what else. She was like, why were you kneading dough on a serving tray? 
You know, there's other places you can do that. Anyway, I genuinely had to apologize for that. There's times where I really have to apologize. Like when my wife tells me to follow the directions and I say, no, I got it. And then we get lost. That's a time to apologize. But here's what I learned when I've tried to embrace this posture of humility. I've had to apologize for things that I don't even know if I did wrong. More than I did when I do do some things that are wrong. Why? I could be wrong. So if I say something, something comes out of my mouth and I have no intent to harm you. But it harmed you. My approach is that I apologize. You're putting the interests of others before yourself. And this type of mentality when it comes to our relationships changes everything. Your friendships, your marriage, the people that you're in community with. It's simply saying, I could be wrong. Somebody say, I could be wrong. It's hard for some of you to say, that's why I said that. We don't have it all together. Just acknowledge that it's a first practical step to entering into community. Here's another one. We can disagree and not be divided. We can disagree yet not be divided. I grew up in a Pentecostal church my whole life. Like hardcore Pentecostal. Our pastor, he would schedule fasting and prayer meetings twice a day during spring break. As a middle schooler, I thought he was so cruel. Because here I am, I'm about to enjoy my spring break, and my parents are like, no, we're going to fasting and prayer at 12 p.m., and then you're back at it at 7 p.m. every single day. I grew up in the type of church where we would have 24-hour services. We had 50-hour services. I'm not joking. You would bring a pillow, and then you sleep, and you get up, and you just keep doing what you were doing. We had revival meetings, we had encounter meetings, we had encounter nights where people would receive healing and prayer, and it was awesome. There was something unique about my upbringing. I've seen God do some amazing things, miracles and healings. I grew up in it for 23 years of my life. So when my first internship, which turned into a part-time job and a full-time job, was with a church planting network in New York City, where all the pastors came from different denominations and backgrounds, God blew my mind. Say, wait, you don't speak in tongues, but Jesus is using you? We had pastors from Presbyterian background, Baptist background. Some of them were Reformed. Some of them were non-denominational. Some of them refused to be labeled as some type of Christian. And here these guys were planting churches in New York City. You don't plant churches in New York City. Because they, they eventually die. And here they were, they had planted 10 churches in five years, and Jesus was using these churches to bring people closer to him. And God was using all of us, despite our different backgrounds and theological convictions, to help people see his love for them. So I had this experience of being in this one context of Pentecostal Christianity for 23 years, and then here I was in New York City with this church plant network, and then God moved me to San Antonio, where the pastor, he came from a Church of Christ background. Like the they don't play instruments, Church of Christ background. Very different from my Pentecostal upbringing. But then I saw that God is using this man to bring millions of people to his kingdom. That he sold over 100 million books. And then when you have coffee with this man, he is the kindest, nicest pastor that I've ever met in my life. And what God taught me was that he's not one-dimensional. See, growing up, I thought it was just Pentecostals that God used. God showed me he's not one-dimensional. He does not get caught up in the things that we get caught up in. 
the things that separate us. Does not matter to God. We won't agree on everything. It's why we say here at Outer West Community Church that we major on the majors. And we can disagree on some of the minors. There are primary matters that we won't waver on. Those are core essential tenets of our faith. But there are secondary matters that we can disagree on. In fact, it's probably healthy for us to disagree on some of those. If you go to a church where everyone looks like you, talks like you, everyone in the church has their hands up, voted for the same person, has the same belief on women in leadership, has the same belief on gun rights, everyone agrees on who the next president should be, it sounds more like a cult than a church community. A community of faith is one which regardless of our differences, we embrace them and choose to be united and committed to one another Not because we agree with one another, but because of what Jesus has done for us all in uniting us to him. That's what community is about. We don't have it all together and we can disagree and not be divided. If I'm coming on a little too strong, it's because I had five weeks off from preaching. Got a lot on my mind. Been processing all of this. Here's the last one. For us to truly move into community that God intends for us, we can't settle for convenience. We can't settle for convenience. The temptation when it comes to the mess that you find in community and just in relationships with people is to settle for surface level relationships. Some of you will go the rest of your life not ever making meaningful relationships with others because you've settled for convenience. And I get it. I totally get it. It would be much easier for me to go from church to church like every six months. I'm a lead pastor here for six months, the next one for six months, next one. Sounds kind of nice. You don't have to deal with all the stuff that comes with it. Very different from committing to a group of people for an extended amount of years. You could do the same thing. It's easier for you to just bounce around when things get a little difficult. It's easier to watch online. And there's nothing wrong with watching church online, but it is easier. You can get up in your PJs, cook some bacon and eggs, and sit and watch church. I mean, that's easier than this. It's easier for us to not want to have that awkward conversation with someone that disagreed with us or said something that offended us out of fear of that person, how that person would react. It's easier to avoid that conversation. It's easier to not join a life group because it's inconvenient. Our schedules don't line up. I just think at times that we've made following Jesus about taking the most comfortable route when he's promised us the opposite. And in return, what we've often done in, in the American evangelical church is we're not following Jesus, but Jesus follows our schedules. For others of us, convenience is not just about avoiding the messiness. We settle for convenience by feeding into consumerism. After all, it's what we do as a culture, as a people, we consume. So for some of us, we've never entered into true community because we've been part of three different communities the past three years. I love Paul. He writes to the church in 1 Corinthians. By the way, this stuff that we deal with in the church today has been going on for years. In fact, it happened in one of the earliest churches, the church in Corinth. 
who was a messy church, by the way. Paul writes to them, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, here's what he says. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Beautiful writing from Paul. And then he goes on to explain why he's setting them up for this. It says, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household had informed me that there are quarrels among you. I love that he's getting to the specifics. It's like saying, some from the Snyder household has told me that there's some fights going on in Outer West Community Church. He's saying it because there's proof to who he's talking about, and they can double check and fact check it. Saying, some from Chloe's household have informed me as they came back to him that there are quarrels among you. And then he explains what the quarrel is about. He says, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas or Peter. Still another says, I follow Christ. So what was happening in this new church was Paul planted these churches and he was one of the leaders. But then God began to raise up other leaders. And so people began following leaders based on what, what the leaders could offer to them. So Paul was new school. He was preaching Christ crucified. Faith in Christ through grace and grace alone. And here's what they say. They said, I follow Paul. And then another says, I follow Apollos. We know that Apollos, Paul says, was a gifted preacher and teacher. So others followed him because he was a great preacher. And then some say, I follow Cephas or Peter. But Peter was old school. He was Jewish and he held on to some of the traditions. And in fact, next week we'll, cover, we'll talk about some of the disputes that Peter and Paul had. So some say, you know what, I'm, I'm with that type of church. I'm going to follow Cephas. And then some say, I just follow Christ. They said, my grandparents, they walk with Jesus. So all you leaders, we don't follow you guys. We just follow Jesus. They were picking and choosing based on what the leader could offer them. And Paul says this to the Corinthian church. Is Christ divided? Do we pick and choose parts of it? Is he divided? Did Apollos die for you? Did Paul die for you? Did a pastor die for you? Did a church give you your salvation? And then he says this. For Christ did not send me to baptize, because some people were clinging to the leaders that baptized him. He says, my goal is not to baptize you, but to preach the gospel. And then Paul points at his deficiencies. He says, but to preach the gospel not with wisdom and eloquence. Why? He knew he wasn't the best preacher out of the group. He knew that Apollos was the better preacher. He had the better programs. He says, but Christ called me. Not to preach, to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He says, when you make it about all the outside things and what leaders can offer you and following giftings, you've emptied the power of the cross. We'll never enter into the beauty of community surrounded by people from all backgrounds, walks of life, centered on the power of the cross if we're pulled in different direction by the power of organized religion or the glitz and glamour that comes with the stage and the lights and the big church and the programs and the good kids ministry and the good-looking pastors here. Just kidding. 
We'll never understand the power of the cross if we make it about everything else except the one thing that has brought us together under him. The cross of Christ where he has united every single one of us. The rest of it. Not reasons to leave community. And by the way, I'm not trying to convince anyone to stay in the church. If God leads you to another church, so be it. If God has brought you from another church, so be it. But do not let it be about trivial, secondary, mundane things. You guys good? Worship team, you guys can come on up so I can get off the stage. Susan Pinker, she's a social scientist columnist for the Wall Street Journal. And she gave this TED Talk in 2017. And she titled it this. The secret to living longer may be your social life. In her research, she discovered that the Italian island of Sardinia had ten times as many centenarians as North America. Ten times as many people on this island lived above a hundred years of age than in North America. She did some research, some digging. She found that it was not the olive oil. It wasn't the sunny climate. It wasn't the gluten-free diet or the personality types of the people there. She found that it was the quality of close-knit personal relationships and face-to-face interactions. And she concludes it this way. Building in-person interactions into our cities, into our workplaces, into our agendas actually sends hormones surging through our bloodstream and brain and helps us live longer. And she says, this is how you build a village and building it and sustaining it is a matter of life. She's simply saying what Jesus told us to do 2,000 years ago. To be united as one. To approach one another. Not out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility to value others above yourself. It goes against the culture that we find ourselves in. It says if you don't like it, swipe to the next one. If you don't like that marriage, next one. If you don't like that church, next one. If you don't like that friend, next one. If you don't like that pastor, next one. And here's how we, how we break past this. When you're afraid to step into the messiness of community, just look to the cross where Jesus died for you despite your own messiness. And when we acknowledge that, he calls us to simply extend the same amount of love and grace and mercy and patience that he extended towards us to the people that he's placed around us. So I don't know what the next step for you is. Maybe you join a group. Maybe you join MOPS, as Stacy was saying. Maybe you just invite people into your personal space. For some of us, most people in, your, in our lives don't know the real us. Because we've closed that door, we've closed it off because of fear of entering community. And here's why it sounds like I have a chip on my shoulder. I've been in some messy churches, some messy communities, but I can't shake the fact that this is what Christ has called us to. It's actually just a normal part of being a human being. And when Jesus looked at Peter and he said, 
you, Peter, upon this rock, upon your faith, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. A lot of times we make it about the opposition from the outside that's coming in. They're coming to take our freedom. They're coming to take our nonprofit status. The culture is penetrating our kids. I think a lot of times the biggest problem to the modern-day evangelical Protestant church is the disunity between the people that sit in the same pews together. And Jesus has called us to be united. And so what Paul said to the Corinthian church, I say to you, Outer West Community Church, I appeal to you that there be no divisions or factions or quarrels among you, that you be united as one because Christ is not divided and Christ has united you. Let me pray for you as we close. God, we thank you for the finished work of Jesus that unites messy people back to a loving, good, just God. May we live in community out of an overflow of that conviction. But I pray that we will be a united church. Not because we agree on everything. We know the one who's united us. And so when people in community, when we see their faults, we see their imperfections, we simply extend the same amount of love and grace and patience that you've extended to us. God, I pray for people in this room that have strained relationships with family members, with coworkers, with neighbors, with church people. Pray, Lord, that you would bring unity where there is disunity and division. God, I also pray for those who have been hurt by church communities in the past. Those who have been victims of church communities with leaders that abuse their power. I pray that you would bring healing to their hearts. You would do what only you can, Spirit of God. You would restore pray for those who have made the secondary matters the primary matters. May we approach one another looking to the best interests of the other person. Lord, I pray that every single person here takes the next step towards true and authentic community. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are accomplishing the work that Jesus has set us out to do. And as he prayed, Father, they may be one that the world would know of your love. May our unity be our witness to the people that surround us. It's in your precious name we pray. And the church said...